This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 9th of November 2021. Now, Tegan, um, yesterday there was a press conference from various modellers, including the Doherty, the, the uh, Burnett Institute and others, kind of revising their estimates. Now, just to remind people what the Doherty model was, the Doherty model was commissioned by the federal government and I think National Cabinet as well to predict what would happen when we opened up at uh, 70%, 80% and so on. And in fact, they stopped at 80% and we've done even better than 80%, which is terrific. So now they're looking at other areas and you went along to hear what they had to say. What did they have to say, Tegan? That's right. So the last model that you just mentioned, Norman, and we've, we've, we've breezed past 80% double vaccination for 16 plus Australia-wide now, which is, as you say, what the last model was about. It was about Australia-wide thresholds and what that was going to mean for transmission. And now they're drilling down into specific groups of the population that are maybe higher risk. So people coming in from overseas, where what they might do to our transmission of the virus here in Australia, people in remote communities, in Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. And they also looked at schools because we've heard people saying, yeah, cool, lockdown's over, but my kids are still at home because there's been outbreaks in their community and so schools have closed. Yeah, I mean, in fact, just yesterday, I think the number was 29 schools across New South Wales and Victoria were shut and that does not include childcare centres. Right. And so, you know, people being sick aside, and of course we don't want to brush that to the side, but what that means for most of the families in that school that don't have COVID is it's really disruptive. It's disruptive to their family situation and it also reduces the number of face-to-face days that kids have at school, which they go to school because it's important for their education. And so one of the things that the modelers, the group of modelers that you mentioned looked at was different ways of keeping kids in face-to-face schools. And one of them is one of our favourite topics, rapid antigen testing. So what was their intervention? So what what they effectively did was they modelled interventions to, rather than predicting the way it was going to go in schools, what would happen if you did X, Y or Z? So what was their strategy? So they looked at different, like you say, different scenarios, but what they were looking at was if there was a single infection in a school, what could happen from that? And so about half the time, kind of nothing happened, but in the other half of the time, an outbreak happened. And so what they did, one of their inputs, because it's sort of like you're basically setting up a computer game that you then press play on and then see how those characters act in the game when they're sort of running these models. And what they did was they were doing twice weekly student testing with rapid antigen testing. And that had a really big impact on reducing the probability of an outbreak. And also if there was an outbreak, how many cases came down the line from that. So effectively, if you're a kid at one of these schools and you're rapid antigen testing negative, you stayed at school and if you're positive, you were plucked out of school and had to go home. Right. But for people who were close contacts, they could even stay in school as long as they were taking a rapid antigen test every day for seven days. It had about the same amount of risk of an outbreak as if they were actually at home quarantining for 14 days. So yeah, even class contacts of a positive case could stay in school as long as they were doing these rapid antigen testing daily for seven days. And is this high school or primary school or both? They looked at both and they were talking about how primary school and high schools, there's differences in how diseases spread because there's differences in how they come into contact with each other. It's so complicated. And the the difference, of course, is that at the moment anyway, in primary school, you're not immunised, whereas in high school you are. Yes. I don't know if that's actually something that they looked into. They were talking about the fact that younger kids are less likely to 
to catch the virus and less likely to transmit it because some people in the press conference, including our colleague Casey Briggs, who we've had on the show just a couple of weeks ago, was asking whether this could be something that could be generalised to workplaces, whether maybe adults could be doing this as well. But they were saying, well, kids maybe are a lower risk of catching and transmitting the virus than adults, so it's hard to, to generalise that into adult populations. So, now, so rapid antigen testing would be a good proposal, a good, a good thing to do. So what about Aboriginal communities? And I think they particularly looked at remote Aboriginal communities. Yeah, so they were saying, and I mean, this doesn't come as a surprise to anyone, high coverage of vaccination prior to any outbreak is crucial. I mean, yes, of course. And then they were talking about being able to take cases and close contacts out of that community in a culturally safe way was really good at Uh, preventing onward transmission, which again, we know. But one of the things that was quite interesting was that they said that reactive vaccination, that is once the outbreak starts, finding people who aren't vaccinated and going door to door and actually offering them the chance to get vaccinated really did have an impact on reducing the size of the outbreak. So even though it's happening later, later than it should, it's not too late to, to make a difference with vaccination, even once an outbreak started. It's what they used to in the smallpox when they were trying to control smallpox, the ring vaccination. And in fact, that's, that was the technique that controlled smallpox in the end and, and eliminated it. And what did they say about um, overseas arrivals? Because there's been, a bit of, there's been an argument that we should be starting to use rapid engine testing with overseas arrivals, which would be a bit more flexible and accurate than, than PCR. And what about overseas arrivals? Because I noticed they they actually did look at unvaccinated adults coming in, which is not the case at the moment, and unvaccinated children under 12. And they looked at various scenarios with them in terms of quarantine. Yeah, they were comparing all sorts of different pathways. So whether you're in hotel quarantine or home quarantine, whether you're quarantining for seven or 14 days. And I should should make this clear, this is if you're infected coming in. In other words, this is not all comers. Exactly. Basically, what they found was that if there was a quarantine breach, if we have high vaccination coverage in the community and ongoing health measures like the masks and the social distancing and all the stuff we're doing at the moment, a large outbreak really wasn't very likely anyway. Yep, because we put up the barriers, which is great. So that's good. And uh, we'll have a link to the Doherty model document um, on our website. And so if you want to read it for yourself, you can. So one thing that didn't get included in the Doherty model in coverage, which I thought was interesting, but then I was reflecting and thought, well, they've got so many different moving parts to contend within these models and they're really just indicators. But they, what they didn't look at was waning immunity. The The models assumed that the immunity remained constant over time, but we know that immunity does wane and that's why yesterday we saw the beginning, the official beginning of Australia's booster vaccination program. Or as CoronaCast likes to say, the third dose program. Yeah, let's make third dose happen. And, and, and actually, seriously, the, the reason we're calling it third dose is to consider yourself fully immunised next year, almost certainly beginning of next year, uh, Atagi will tell you that it's three doses to be immunised. So you might as well get onto it now to make sure you're fully covered and we don't get into those scenarios where it's all wearing off too quickly. So Leah's actually had a question about this, asking about sort of basically how the immune system works, saying why is a booster necessary after being double vaccinated, even if the antibody levels has waned, shouldn't the memory cells of the immune system kick into action and create more antibodies if I encounter the virus? And she says, is my understanding of immunity naive? It's not naive at all. It's spot on. And the question is how many times you've got to prime the immune system um, or we 
prime really with the first dose and then you boost with the second and third doses, um, how much you've got to kick it into action, to use your words, Leah, to actually get into that memory, those memory cells and, and deepen the immune response so that you actually do get a profound and ongoing response. Because what's happening clearly from the Israeli data and the British data is that we haven't got a lot of memory sitting there with two doses because those people's immune systems seem to forget about the virus and you get infected. And it seems to forget about protecting you against um, severe disease to some extent, depending on your age. So this is about the extra boot up the bum for your immune system to get those memory cells there. So just to deepen the immune response. Now, some people say that it varies according to the vaccine that maybe Astra gives you a deeper memory cell response, but the epidemiological data don't support that. Um, Astra wanes probably just even a little bit faster than Pfizer. And so the booster vaccination program that started yesterday means basically anyone over 18 who's had their second dose at least six months ago can now book to have their third shot. But like you say, Norman, people aren't required to have a booster to be exempt from restrictions. Do you think that that might change? Yeah, I think it'll probably change next year. It's already true in Israel. So in Israel, to get your green pass to allow you to go to bars and get out and about, you've got to have, and you're five months after your second dose, you've got to have had your booster to for the essentially the effect of the effect of QR code in Israel to work for you. So it's fine before five months, but after five months, you've got to have the booster in there, and that's likely the way it will go here. Whether or not we'll still have QR codes at that point is another matter. But to be fully immunised, it's going to be three doses eventually, not yet, but eventually. I need to look back and see the date that I had my second dose because I don't think I'm at the six months mark yet, but I think it'll come around pretty quickly. Yeah. And if you are immune compromised, you don't have to wait six months. 28 days is what you wait for. Well, that's everything from today's CoronaCast. But if you've got questions and comments, of course, as always, go and ask them at abc.net.au slash CoronaCast. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then.